This episode will share personal moments of connection and deeply felt experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. Or remember, you can call Lifeline at any time on 13114. You can also call Beyond Blue at 1300 22 46 36. It got to the rock bottom moment when um, I was suicidal. I was on my knees. I was in my underwear, shooting up ice, looking on my carpet to decipher between um, methamphetamine, sugar, salt or ice. That was my existence. Just checking which one was the meth. I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. A podcast about death and dying, love, grief, and hope. On our show, we talk to all kinds of people who, through various trajectories, have found themselves trying to explain the unexplainable. Trying to accept the unacceptable. Trying to make sense of chaos. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Maddie and Jason. So happy and proud to be with you. It's an honour. I've listened to many of your podcasts and it's really a testament to your character and how you go about, um, you know, your day-to-day podcast and putting them on. So really happy to be here. Yeah, well, thanks for coming. And Ben, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Well, I'm 40 years old. I am a recovering drug addict. I'm five years, three months and two weeks clean or 2,140 days, but I guess I am counting. Um, I grew up in Melbourne, Victoria. I grew up in Turak from a very affluent, loving, good Jewish family. Um, I had a lot of love growing up. Um, I had a lot of support. I was an actor. I was a happy, loving kid. Uh, I went to Mount Scopus College um, at the end of year 12. I took a gap year, I took a year off, I travelled the world, got into a few crisis moments, drug-related. I spent a bit of time in an Israeli prison for getting caught with drugs. I um, had a lot of wake-up calls. Um, And then I came back to to Melbourne and I did a Bachelor of Performing Arts where I became an actor and I was a performer and I got an agent and um, I had auditions and it was a very tough industry, which I didn't really uh, know the extent of that. I then started to take drugs on a more regular basis I then did my Diploma of Education and became a drama teacher at Yavna College for nearly nine years. Um, And slowly towards my late 20s, early 30s, where my drug addiction started to spiral out of control. Um, I started to take more ecstasy, more cocaine. Uh, I became a cocaine addict. And then eventually I started experimenting with crystal methamphetamine. And then all of a sudden, by the age of about 30 to 35, I was injecting crystal meth and cocaine on a daily basis in my apartment, segregated from the world, uh, an addict alone, you know, desperate, um, bereft of any life, you know, just existing and not living. Um, I had many interventions where my parents uh, organised people and close friends to come over to my place to try to help me go and get treatment. I refused it a lot. Uh, you know, as, 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 uh, as addicts, we're very uh, selfish, self-centred, uh, dishonest, distrusting, um, awful people, you know. Um, and my parents sent me to a Currumbin clinic in Queensland, 
uh, for six weeks. I went there twice over a year or two. Um, that didn't work. I came back. I relapsed straight away. Uh, you know, I was going and teaching at Yavner every morning with a meth pipe hiding in my sock. Um, I was putting on this brave mask and brave face to the world. Uh, but deep down, I was really hurting. Um, I was a shadow of myself. Uh, and I'll just fast track a little bit. Um, and then, you know, I was 38 kilos. I'd hair down to my, to my shoulders. Um, I was pale. I was orange. I was, uh, you know, bereft of any hope. I, I, used to carry dr- uh, I used to carry dog biscuits in my pocket uh, and break into my parents' house and steal their money so the dog wouldn't bark and give the dog biscuits at midnight. Like these sick things. I used to, my parents used to get phone calls. They'd have seen Ben Morley, you know, hanging out against St Kilda Road, banging his head against traffic light poles. I used to have sheriffs come to my parents' house in the middle of the night. I had drug dealers going to my dad's office in Turak looking for me. Um, I had parking and speeding fines, about 80 grand worth. Uh, I didn't answer my doorbell. I didn't answer my phone. I just locked myself in my apartment and used drugs. It got to the rock bottom moment when um, I was suicidal. I was on my knees. I was in my underwear, shooting up ice, looking on my carpet. I used to buy those really long, long carpets with um, a lot of, um, what's the word? The stuff in the carpet. So things get deep seated stuck in them. So I would just pick up my carpet every few days and go and look through it all to decipher between um, methamphetamine, sugar, salt or rice. That was my existence, just checking which one was the meth. Um, and eventually on May the 31st, 2015, um, my Israeli brother-in-law, Diego Steckman, um, broke into my apartment, beat me up, put me in the back of my dad's car. This is Israeli tough support, by the way. <laughs> uh, put me in the back of my <laughs> yeah. dad's car and sent me off to the Raymond Hayder Clinic in Geelong, which was a 12-step therapeutic-based rehab, uh, which was the first day of the rest of my life. Uh, when I arrived there, I, was, I went with my head between my legs. I ran out of everything. I, I, I always started questioning myself. And I walked in and people greeted me with open arms, 27 other recovering addicts, not judging, uh, asking about me. Everyone that was there, it was like everyone was there to love Ben back to life. Um, and I did 97 days in Geelong. There was no, it was sort of like Alcatraz meets Big Brother, I like to think of it. Um, there was no phones, there was no computers, there was no TV, there was no contact with the outside world, there was no radio. It was um, systematic detox clean. I was in a room by myself in the dark every night going to bed without anything. Um, and uh, for those 97 days, I did 12 steps. I went for morning walks, messy bed, messy head. I made my room spick and span. I did a lot of exercise. I did a lot of deep self-seeking. I did art therapy. I did yoga. I did meditation. Um, I did 90 meetings in 90 days for Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I checked in every morning with 27 other addicts talking about feelings. Um, it was amazing. And I got my 30, 60, 90-day tags. And my parents came for the presentation on your 90th day and sit around the circle with the support staff and everyone there um, talking about my experience, strength and hope by working through the program of the 90 days. I remember my parents used to come and visit me after six weeks and get searched at the front door and were really scared and worried and walked into the rehab and saw, you know, other heroin addicts with tattoos on their faces or guys bailed from prison uh, thinking that their son was different, uh, which I wasn't. I was exactly the same. Um, and after the 97 days, um, I went and continued my treatment. I went and lived in a transitional housing, in transitional housing in Mooney Ponds with 17 other recovering addicts. 
Um, I was so excited to get clean that I just begged my parents if they could keep paying for me to stay in program. And they did. And I spent nine months in a transitional house. So that was not going back to work. That was living and being in recovery, uh, living with a community of recovering addicts. I did 500 NA meetings in my first year. I did, if there was, an, if there was a, a commercial for NA, I would be the face. I put myself front and centre of NA. I, w- I went to all the Byron Bay NA conventions. I went to all the meetings. I did guest speaking. I was like this, 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 this new life have come into me. And all of a sudden I found my purpose. I ended up um, buying into a private rehab. I ended up running my own private rehab at not even two years clean. Wow. Um, I then did that for a year and I was just doing everything. So I had to take a step back. I was so proud and happy to meet my wife at two years clean. Um, I then went off and started my own business called Drug Ed, which has been, I can't even explain how it's been. Like I run it myself. I have a waiting list of people to help. Um, and if you would have told me what I've achieved in the last five years of being clean, it's, it's just unimaginable. I got a wife. I've got three kids in recovery. They're all my biggest gifts in recovery. Like I, I've worked through the 12 steps twice. I have 12 families and loved ones that I'm working with on a daily basis. Close friends of mine in the last few months have come to me calling me. We want to speak to Ben Morley. Uh, I need help. Like people calling my parents now, not t- telling them they've seen me banging my head in a drug-induced psychotic state down St Kilda Road at three in the morning. They actually call my parents asking that they need my help. So for me, that's my biggest amends to my parents is staying in recovery. It's not paying them back. Um, it's actually being in recovery. And if I'm not going to take drugs and alcohol, I'm going to do the complete opposite because I have an allergic reaction to drugs and alcohol. I can't just have a sip of wine at Shabbat dinner or a line of Coke tonight or go and have a split with my mates or go and have a few lines of cocaine on a Friday night watching the grand final because I can't stop at one. You mentioned, um, you know, a few sort of pivotal moments of darkness. How do you remember that period? I remember it so clearly, Maddie, and it's like, I have such a healthy fear of relapse because if I go and have uh, an eight ball of cocaine tonight, you probably won't see me ever again Mm. Um, because that healthy fear of relapse, I've seen, I've had close friends of mine that I've gone through rehab with OD and die in front of my face. Um, And the brothers that you make, not my six Mount Scopers best friend guys who came and visit me that I love and I'll see them for a coffee or I'll see them at the footy or I'll go have lunch with them. And mind you, in my first year of recovery, I got really resentful about my close friends that they stopped calling me or I didn't see them on a Friday night or where were they? And I realised, wow, I had to really crunch that with my sponsor and realise it's not about them, it's about me. I'm choosing recovery. They can harm minimise. They can use recreationally. They're not recovering addicts. I am. Um, But to answer your question, yeah, so during those rock bottom moments, and I remember them so vividly and so clearly, I was so skinny. I used to go and teach uh, year 11 and 12 drama and sport at Yavna College, and I would have a meth pipe smoking it in the prep bathrooms before each period then going out there and teaching kids. And I was so, I lost so much weight that I had to wear long sleeve tops to teach. And I had hundreds of kids in front of me. And it was just like 40 degrees sweating in the summer. And I'm wearing these long sleeve tops and tracksuit pants, like hurting so much inside, trying to explain when someone says, why don't you take your jumper off? Mm. It was those crazy moments in itself that just make you question even like your own self-worth. I used to get home. And when I'm sitting there using or getting all the drugs in order and waiting to, to, to work it all out, um, there's that moment of pain-induced moment of clarity when you realise that I didn't choose to become a drug addict. Mm. I didn't put my hand up in year eight class and say to the teacher, I want to be an addict when I'm older. Um, it was really 
struggled and hard for me to realize because when I get a few hours or a few days or half a day clean, all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh my God, what am I doing to myself? What am I, what am I doing to my family? Oh my God, that, that guilt and shame cycle that starts to feed into you gets so damaging and heartbreaking that I just have to keep using. Mm. I have to get back to that space of, oh. Mm. And Ben, I want to ask this pretty directly. How are you, with everything you've gone through, how are you still alive? How are you still well, present? Yeah, good question. It's a miracle that I'm here. I've had so many crazy experiences happen to me, whether motorbike accidents. I got into a, a huge tussle in India where I nearly broke my leg and missed a flight and I was in Bombay in a wheelchair handing out rupees to crazy people. Um, in Thailand with my friends at, at, at Boom and festivals and Rainbow Serpent around the world, like all these things, I always thought, why does everything so crazy and insane always happen to me? I thought, well, that was me, the drug addict, that of course all these crazy situations would happen to. Yes, and, and, and that's, that's something that I was thinking. When you first started, you were talking about addicts being dishonest, sidetracked to society in many ways. Yep. And Maddie and I both work in this field and we, we receive a lot of different interactions from people that are in the midst of their dependence. And um, I'm wondering your experience in seeking support or why did it take this long? Why did it take this long for you to realise this is something that you, that you want to you know, live a meaningful life? Yeah, interesting. Well, you know what? It's funny because I, I, had, I had actually resentments on NA when I first got clean. Where was NA for the first 30 years of my life? There were meetings around the corner from me my whole time. How come my parents never switched on or latched on to some recovery guru or Jackson Oppie, the owner of the Raymond Hayter Clinic, which I'll make a mention, he's one of my uh, most amazing and closest friends in recovery. Well, the Raymond Hayter Clinic got me clean. But, um, you know, they say recovery happens when you find it, when you're meant to find recovery. And unfortunately, there are millions of addicts uh, all over the world that never find the rooms or never get clean or never find recovery. So I guess I try to live in the solution. And the fact that I've found recovery is a gift in itself. So that's why um, it's something that you never sort of want to, you know, not embrace and not stick with. You think you have to be ready to find recovery? Uh, you don't ever really have to be ready. You just have to be willing. You mentioned, Ben, that um, your, who was it, your cousin, Israeli cousin? Diego, my brother-in-law. Sorry, Diego. Yeah. Um, came to your house and um, beat you up and took you to rehab. Yes, I've yes. got some crazy pictures, <laughs> which I was going to send to my lawyer the day he did it. Okay, so it sounds like to me that that situation, um, you were not willing. Um, I wasn't really willing, I wasn't, but you know what? I, I, I pawned my car just, on, just around the corner here in between my, my sister and my brother-in-law's chicken shop and my dad's office. There's the Israeli pawnbroker right in the middle. And I literally went, went, literally went there and gave him my car and got a few, a few quarts of cocaine and went back home. And then I ran out of that about two or three nights and I didn't have a car. Yeah. So that's the insanity of the disease of, disease of addiction that, um, you know, it got to the point where I was really, uh, I wouldn't say I was ready, but I'd had enough and I've run out of pretty much everything. I got payday loans, cash converters. I did everything you could possibly do to get money to continue to choose you because I couldn't go to bed without a drug. So it got to the point where once he did that, um, it was kind of like, well, when he drove me into the 12 step rehab into Jackson's office, I'd never met a Jackson Oppie before, a recovering addict who was seven years clean 
And all of a sudden I thought, wow, well, I don't have to worry about owing my dealer money. And, you know, my sister ostracized me from the family. She had a baby the day I got clean. So I wasn't even allowed to go to the hospital. Uh, I was sort of barred from my family. So I had to make pretty much a no-brainer decision um, to go up there. And, um, yeah, the rest was history. Ben, can you give me an idea of what it looks like? If you had to sort of describe what your flat looked like in the sort of the midst of yeah. the addiction, what did well, it look like? How could you describe it to somebody? Like on a, a horror movie, it was just like I moved, I didn't even sleep in my bedroom for three years. I'd move my mattress into the main room on the floor. Um, you know, I had my, my TAB, my, my pokies online, um, my TAB on the, on, the, on the TV, all my using utensils everywhere, just shit. It was just a pigsty. And all I had on my stove was some boiled, boiled eggs and protein powder. That was pretty much my diet. Yeah. What would a typical day look like? Um, well, look, because the majority of it was when I was teaching. So it was kind of like I had to rush, chuck on clothes, you know, have an egg, you know, light the stove for my drugs, um, get everything ready, rush to school. Mind you, when I was, when I mixed it with the cocaine and methamphetamine, when I would take cocaine, I couldn't face the world. So I actually had to take days off and I used up a lot of my sick days and a lot of my annual leave. Uh, and, you know, there were some 72 hour periods where I would lock all the doors, turn off my phone um, and just binge on cocaine for like 72 hours to the point where I used to have a black eye under my left eye. So I used to just stare through the keyhole in a, in a drug-induced psychotic state, knowing that someone was coming up the stairs. Like, I could pretty much see them coming, but I, that was my delusional thinking. Mm. And a lot of it centred around pulling apart my air conditioner next to my bed, uh, thinking that there was um, hidden microphones that the, federate, the Fed police were looking in. And it's funny, everyone who takes methamphetamine or cocaine can really relate to these stories. Mm of the, the video cameras in the air conditioners, mm. um, it feeds in the same part of the brain. Um, but recovery, the main thing I wanted just to add is recovery is about progression, not perfection. Yeah. So if someone, if I, someone I'm working with relapses, if someone has a using thought, you know, I had one, I've got one person I'm working with, he got, he's got his 30 days clean um, and then he relapsed and now he's 12 days clean again. And that's okay. <laughs> you know, a lot of people I work with have never done rehab before. They've never done recovery. They've had an addiction for so long. And the parents are like, oh, we wanted to get, oh, look, Benny's relapsed. We're a bit down. I said, how can you be down? The kid's just entered recovery. We're trying to do a psychic shift. We're trying to reshape his brain. Like relapse is part of many people's recovery. I've had one of my closest friends who's 10 years clean. He relapsed for the first five years in NA. Yeah, so, but at the same time, um, you have to have a healthy fear of relapse happening. Yeah, because it's really about, I don't want, I don't, I no longer need externals to make myself feel good. Yeah. Cause the thing, three things that people are most afraid of, are death, other people and our minds. Mm. Yeah. I love that. We, we both work under the model where sort of his, historical trauma or underlying sort of psychological changes or, or concerns, um, uh, are the big sort of precipitator behind substance use. And and I feel that, and this is this is my own bias with um, twelve step programs, uh, is they they don't address much of the psychological need. It, yeah, interesting you say that. Gabriel Mate mentioned that the other day on a new podcast. There's no pain in twelve steps. There's no wording of pain. It doesn't talk about past trauma as such. But one acting one one addict helping another 
is exactly that. It's working through trauma. It's talking with your coach or your sponsor about your deepest, darkest secret. It's working through step four and five, which is the most intimate thing you can do with another human being. So yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, but at the same time, really working through the 12 steps, trauma or not, if you can only gain a better perspective about yourself to the world, then it can only help moving forward. Yeah. And, yeah. and I've actually had a lot of... Um, arguments in my own mind with the Gabor Mate method, all he speaks about is people coming into from active addiction of past trauma uh, and being sexually abused and having all those things around that. And I'm watching him and analyzing him and listening to all these podcasts thinking, I haven't had that. So what, what and the, but I'm an addict and I'm, I'm just getting clean. So where's, where's that? So I think that's a big uh, differential between uh, past trauma and coming in. But at the same time, I probably had trauma my whole life in all those experiences I had. I just never labelled it that way. Right, right. And so when you, when you, that step four, step five, where you are opening up, drawing out that connection, that's something that is, is, is clear, is the, the, the greatest strength of these programs, is the connection to another human being. Yes, it's one addict helping another. So that's why we say an addict alone is an addict in trouble. And the opposite yeah. of addiction is actually connection. It's community. Yeah. It's relating to other recovering addicts. It's probably the most intimate, crazy thing you can do in life is running an intervention. And I've, lately I've had about one or two a week. Um, it's actually going into a strange family's home, sitting down with 10 or 15 family members and actually telling them that they've got a drug addict loved one and they've been doing this the wrong way and they need help. I've had Italian mafia. I went to... Um, a place about an hour ago, a couple of weeks ago, like full-on Italian mafia, 25 people sitting there grilling me as I walked in with my little whiteboard um, as a recovery coach interventionist. And by the end, they were just like in shock, like realising how, how their actions have affected their loved one. What, what was your approach with the whiteboard? Well, this... Ah, oh, <laughs> I guess it's a bit of my yavna teacher in me. I go and, I go and educate. I do, the, I do the drama triangle. Yeah. And I do the cycle of addiction to them. Um, and I, educate, I give a really quick recovery 101 session and tell them, you know, their loved one, beautiful girl, 25-year-old, was injecting meth in her neck. Mm. And they bought her a house about um, 400 metres away where she was living on her own. So I said, you're killing your daughter every night by letting her live in this house rent-free down the road on her own. She had bikies and gang members just hanging out there injecting meth into her neck. And they're wondering why... She's using drugs. So um, it's the whole enabling thing that you were working on. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, but look, it's really hard. If you told my mum to kick me out onto the streets and I was using every day injecting ice, she probably mm. couldn't do it either. It's a really hard thing to do, but they can live and die and overdose and die in your room while you're sleeping. Mm. But what, what about if they're kicked out on the street? Mm. They, I mean, in some ways, that's, that's the access to the the drug in itself unfortunately but they're going to reach a lock bottom a lot quicker rather than living in a in a bedroom with food in the fridge what if they reach what if they die before they reach rock bottom on the street unfortunately they die that's the nature of the disease of addiction the world we live in mm. well they die at home after a square meal but um you know when they see that all the loved ones have completely disbarred them and i get them all to send one text um, if you want recovery and you have a willingness and you want to get clean, we will stop at anything. We're hundred percent in, we're willing to help you. We'll do whatever it takes. But if you continue to choose to use, 
we're so sorry, but we cannot have a relationship with you anymore. Because disease is, uh, addiction is toxic. It affects the whole family. Everyone else has to step on eggshells. Everyone else has to walk on tippy toes. Everyone else has to worry and uh, has to react and respond to this crazy um, addict who just acts out at every moment they get. When you, just when you described your story at the start yep. and you were yep. talking about the shame and guilt that you would yes. experience going to work and, and you know, that, that shame was something that yeah, caused yeah, you yeah, to yeah. keep yeah. using and keep yeah. that cycle going. Yeah. Um, but then in, in, in recovery field, there's so much around rock bottom and having family members ensure that their loved yeah. ones reach rock bottom, you know, like what you did with that yeah. Italian family. Um, you know, from, from my mind as someone who's playing the devil's advocate, I'm wondering, yeah. well, doesn't reaching rock bottom, um, causing someone to reach rock bottom just add to the shame that they're yeah, already well, experiencing. Let them, let them feel more ongoing shame and resentment and guilt about what they're doing to themselves and their family members. So you're using I, the shame as a tool. To well, you. making them realise what they're actually doing is forcing them to get clean on their own, get clean for themselves. Because I did my first two rehabs for other people. I did it for my parents. I did it because it looked fun. I didn't actually do it to my, for myself and I didn't get clean. Forcing someone into treatment you can send them up to Geelong. They can walk out at any time. Mm. You know, Malvern Clinic, Melbourne Private, all these places, they're voluntary programs, so you can leave at any time. You know, I spent, my mum had three heart attacks when I was in active addiction. She's alive. Mm. Um, uh, during hundreds and hundreds of sleepless nights that I put them through, I will never relive or be able to understand to this day as much as they would try to explain it to me. But my amends to that is staying in recovery. So... I guess when you find recovery, all that guilt and shame, all of a sudden that starts to subside and we, we become different humans. A question that I've got, um, Ben, is I want to know more about your sort of personal experiences with, um, with, with death in, in the context of, um, let's say, an overdose or um, psychosis. Did you ever have ex- personal experiences where you, you thought this was it? Yes, I've had many of those, uh, especially on cocaine, where I thought my heart was going to explode out of my chest, like beating way, 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 way too fast. I also had um, a big um, motorbike accident in India where I, I woke up and I've had, I've had 12 car accidents, but I, I nearly died off the um, Flinders Highway. I was going to a party in 2011, following my cousin, I was in the passenger seat. I let one of my addict friends, I would say addict, uh, drive my new car. He was smoking meth and he passed. Uh, I was giving him the lighter and he went to smoke the meth pipe as I was lining it for him and we went off the cliff and we rolled about 20, 12 times over a, um, a sort of ditch and I, I woke up upside down in the car and the roof was in front of my face like this, like millimetres from my face. Uh, I was alive and I got pulled out by the jaws, jaws of life. They chucked the, what, what's the, the drug into your mouth? Um, the pepidine, um, and I got taken to hospital. They cut all my clothes off. I had broken bones and bruises, but I was alive, and it was a miracle. Absolutely, we went. We went two days later with my dad to see the car, the wreckage. It was just squashed. It was just like a squashed car. Um, so all of these crazy, uh, life-threatening things that have happened to me, even further, go towards me just being so grateful that I'm alive today. Do you remember what that experience was like, Ben? So that example with with the off the cliff. What, what, do you remember what that was like without before the jaws of life came before the yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I remember yeah. every flip that we did, it was like, oh my God, I'm gonna die. Oh my God, I'm gonna die. Oh my God, I'm gonna die. It was just that over and over again, turning upside down. Oh my God, I'm gonna die. It wasn't even the fear of death in itself. It was the fear of the before the death or the pain that could happen prior to that. I have a phobia of aeroplanes, really, really, really bad. But I've been on hundreds and I go two, three times a year overseas. I'm very lucky. Um, but anything less than seven hours, I'm a wreck. Uh, I look at the whites of the eyes of the hostesses on aeroplanes. I Every single bump or wind or seatbelt sign comes on. I can't even explain the anxiety that I go through. It's, it's um, an irrational fear that um, I guess I'll never really overcome, but um, it's something that I have to do, <laughs> so I do it. Yeah. Um, and the other is the fear of the dentist, which... I had a traumatic experience when I was 19 in Israel. My tooth chipped when I was in the middle of, the, of a desert somewhere. And I had to go to this dodgy doctor in Egypt who put oh. a crown in and um, was the most traumatic experience of my life. Broke the crown into millions of pieces, long story short. Oh. The smell of the dentist's waiting room, everything around that um, just brings up crazy anxiety. And really quickly, uh, on my 90 days treatment in rehab in Geelong, I had to go and get um, sleep dentistry because I'm too scared to have it awake. So I got driven from the rehab to the dentist um, and he, uh, I had to go to the South African um, the anesthesiologist first just to check. He was oh, you're an addict. You've got to be careful because of your cocaine and methamphetamine levels. You have a higher tolerance. So it, it may be that it's not really for you. I said, I don't care. I have to do this. Long story short, I had the went under treatment. I woke, they put me to sleep, woke up after the sleep dentistry. My dad was driving me back to rehab. On the way back, Dad said, "Wow, I can't. Did you did like you actually got through that? Did you? Did they tell you what happened?" I said, "No." He goes, "Ah." Oh. I said, "What?" He goes, "Well, during while I was asleep, I woke up. I took all the needles out of me and ran down the street during the process. So that's why the the drugs didn't have an effect on me because of my high cocaine use. Wow. I woke up from the sleep dentistry really quickly, but my dad was too scared to tell me." Whoa, because your tolerance yeah. had changed? Yeah, because yeah. they can't give you too much because then it's death. That is crazy. Yeah. Wow. I, everything, I don't even remember. And yeah. I ran down the street. Yeah. So I must have had a lot of cocaine. Yeah, wow. Anyway, there was a few near deaths. And all those, I guess, that's trauma, Jason, mm. yeah? Is it? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. trauma is trauma's all relative to the person, right? Mm. It's not for anyone else there to judge. Go. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, Ben, you've you've shared so much. I mean, I really appreciate it, um, and I know Maddie does. Mm. Um, is there any questions that you have for us, or anything you want to say um, while we sort of finish up? Um, no, not really. I'm really proud and thankful for you guys. That was really like, yeah, in depth. That's the difference with your podcast. If you actually go, you know, dark and deep, it probably takes a lot of energy out of you guys on a weekly basis to do that. Oh, yeah. we love it. We love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to say to anyone listening at any time, um, and if you're a family member or a loved one or you're suffering yourself, that it's, it is okay not to be okay and you need to reach out and there is hope and it actually takes a lot of courage and guts to do that first step and actually ask for help. That's what a lot of people don't do. And mm. they don't actually, you guys don't actually realise what you can achieve in total sobriety. And, you know, it's a very unique thing to do. Most humans don't do total sobriety. Um, you know, in itself. And it's not really, it's just one day at a time. It's a just for today program. I don't, I can't tell you if I'm not going to use drugs tomorrow, mm. but I'm not going to use mm. today. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
thank you thank you so much thank you so much ben um you've been amazing and and i can't wait to release the episode and i think let let me know yeah members for you can listen in yeah yeah definitely will do and you know funny thing with our podcast probably similar to your um radio show is we get a lot of silent um appreciative Mm -hmm. listeners you know so people who might be going through recovery themselves or know someone who is um who who not aren't necessarily going to reach out to us but are going to really benefit from the episode might replay it a few times and yeah it's the people you don't know or will never meet that exactly yeah could be someone that walks past you on the street you never know so yeah so thank you so much thank you guys thanks so much That was Making Sense of Chaos. A podcast about death, dying, love, grief and hope. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.